from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome to Cars That Matter. I'm Chris Porter, a producer and editor on the show. Late last year, Robert Ross sat down with William Harlan, Bruce Meyer, and Brett Anderson to record an episode on location at the Napa Valley Reserve. What follows are just some of the highlights from their conversation. To hear more about their history and memories of collecting cars and an even deeper discussion about the philosophy and approach to developing the Napa Valley Reserve, subscribe to Cars That Matter and listen to the full episode called William Harlan and the Napa Valley Reserve. Enjoy the ride. We are at Meadowood Napa Valley, so we're not in the quiet of a studio. In fact, we've got some frogs and woodpeckers and all kinds of things going on around us, and it just reminds us what a beautiful place we're in. And am I mistaken? Was there a was there a 275 GTB story that you guys could share? It's a great story. Let me tell a story before that, though. <laughs> the second car that I ever saw was a, a 275 GTB. I saw that car, and about three years later... I was able to buy one, so I kept it for a few years, and it was a 1965, I guess, and it had first uh, year. Yeah. the drive shaft was always getting out of balance, Right. and I couldn't afford to keep it going, to own the car, and also keep it, but drive shaft and balance and everything else, so I ended up selling it. Really, what I wanted was a yellow one, so I sold it at about 1971, I'd say, 70 or 71, so that's the story on me, selling the red one to get a yellow one. But I never could quite afford all the other things I, I wanted to keep my life going until one day I called Bruce. So so this is, I mean, this is like a divine story, okay? The big boy upstairs, divine. I got a call from a Beverly Hills policeman. And I think I know every garage in Beverly Hills. And he said, Bruce, there's a lady, her husband died 11 years ago. She has a Ferrari in the garage. And she wants to sell it. I said, you know, I'm not a dealer. I'm not sure I'm the right guy. And I'm thinking, it's a car that I probably know nothing about. So he just said, please, just go and talk to her and make nice and so on. Okay. I get to the house. This lady was so sweet. Her husband was an Austrian Olympian skier. She had like a funky motorhome. She moved out of the way of the garage. She opens up the garage. And the garage is full of litter and boxes. And there's this car covered and she rolls back the cover. You could have knocked me over with a feather. Here is a alloy-bodied 275 GTB torque tube, six carburetor, outside gas cap. Alloy. All original, original paint, everything. And I'm going, oh my God. It was like the most beautiful thing I did. I mean, tell me, how did you, what is the story in this car? She said, my husband bought this car from Chris Cord. He and his wife, Katrina, went on their honeymoon in this car in 1966. They bought it brand new, picked it up at the factory, drove it, brought it back to the U.S. and sold it to my husband in 1966. Wow. I'm going, oh, my gosh. My husband died like 11 years ago. It's been sitting here, and I think it's just time that it needs to go. And can you help me sell it? I don't have any idea what the value of this car is because I really didn't. Alloy body, outside gas cap. Yeah, I think they right. made two or three of them yeah, that year. Like for nothing. Sure. Yeah. 
I put her in my car. I drove her to my house, which was like a walk away. And I showed her Bill Doheny's car, which was a twin to this car. Fast forward like six months or so. And she said, Bruce, I've decided to sell the car. I've decided on the price. But, you know, I just don't like the guy. I said, you know, just think it over. Let me think about it. I get a call from Bill. And he said, you know, I'm turning, I don't know, what was it, 60? 60. I'm turning 60 on Saturday. Over 19 years ago. And I want to buy myself a car. And Bill and I have always talked about cars. And, you know, he says, what do you think of this? And, you know, so we've we've always had conversations sure. about cars. Or if something comes up that I think Bill ought to have, yeah. you know, I, I have no problem. Anyways, he said, I'd like to get a 275. I love a yellow one. And now I'm thinking he's messing with me. There's no way... That the same day, there's no, there's no way he would say, I want a 275, a yellow 275. That's beyond coincidence. And I start messing with Bill because I'm thinking he knows something. There's no possible way he would just call me out of the blue. And it's not like we talk every day or every week right, or every right, month. Right. He just called me and said he went. And after querying him, I realized he had he no know. idea. He didn't know. I said, okay, here's the deal. You FedEx me. Tomorrow, information on Meadowood about yourself. FedEx me anything you can about what your lifestyle, and I'm going to make your day. I said, just trust me. And I said, I want you to come down here on Friday. I called Michelle. I said, Michelle, I'm going to make your day. You're going to receive tomorrow information about a guy that is the absolute right owner for your car. I'm pretty good about talking about Bill because <laughs> I, you know. I, I'm a huge fan. You're a master of ceremonies. You yeah. know how to introduce people. So she said, oh, I'm so excited, Bruce. And we have a friend of ours, Chip Connor, who sure. had a garage in, in L.A. And I said to Chip, can I borrow your mechanic to come over? I want to bring some Marvel Mr. Oil and some plug wrenches and stuff. See if she starts and I had after Ed, Ed Brown, the tow guy. You know Ed oh, Brown. Sure, I said, Ed, Ed, everybody's best friend so got every, him on speed dial. That's right. We all do. So Bill flies down. He has no idea. He's just got a check with him. I have Ed Brown there. And Marty, who was Chip's mechanic. And we all converge at Michelle's. To make a long story short, Bill buys the car. And of course, Bill still has it today. And he takes it right to, at that time, Phil Riley and company. Mm -hmm. And has them go through it, make sure everything's perfect. And so the two of us have our twin 275s, long nose, six carburetors. His is way rarer than mine. And it's just like one of those magical stories, you know, that just... Was well, meant to be. Well, if she has any other garages with any other dusty <laughs> yeah. old cars in them, give me a call. Let me see what I can oh, do. What gosh. a great story, Isn't that Bruce. fabulous? That and so the car has a great owner. Yeah. It's basically... Two guys that don't sell their cars. I love it. Even today, here we are almost 20 years later, she comes up about every four or five years to see her car. She still loves that car, checks in on the phone every so often, and so it's just a, a wonderful experience. I mean, this whole thing with Bruce, with Michelle, with the car. I mean, just, it's a fate. What a fantastic thing. So a fellow named Peter Sachs, about 10 years ago, probably called and said, Bruce, what do you think about doing an event up, you know, in the Napa Valley? I said, oh my gosh, this is perfect. And I know right who to call. So I called Bill. The whole thing happens right here at Meta, where they had 23 GTOs. Out of, what, 37 were made and or you something know, like that? Yeah, 30? and you know, these guys, they don't like publicity. They don't want to contaminate their events with anything other than GTOs. That's right. The only way that I would get involved organizing this thing 
with my pal Bill is that both of us were included in the rally and the, right. the whole event. <laughs> let, a <laughs> let a 275 or two in there. Yeah. yeah. So our two yellow 275s <laughs> hung with the GTOs. That's and we great. had a great rally right at Bill's Resort at Meadowood. Uh-huh. And I don't think they've ever had so many together at one time. And maybe the most beautiful place on earth is the winery Bond. That's right. And we have pictures of the gathering at Bond. And Bond, by the way, is another one of Bill's enterprises. You've been to Bond, correct? Yes, I have. Can you imagine, you know, you sit in that reception area and you see the parking out in front. And, and you're looking the, down on two and a half billion dollars worth of Ferraris. Yeah. And by the way, that's only 20 cars. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up taking a detour on a conversation and talked all about Bill's motorcycle racing days and how Bruce would organize friends to attend the rally. But that's because it's all about friendships and machines, regardless of how many wheels they have. Well, at the end of the day, it's all about friendships. Mm-hmm. If somebody said you could have any car on earth and you say, well, I'd love to have a GTO, you know, what is it, 60, 70, 80 million dollars, and you had a GTO and you're the last man on earth, what fun is that? That's right. So the fun is sharing it with people, doing things with friends, like-minded friends, and being together and enjoying it together. And that's a lot of the reason I'm here at the Napa Valley Reserve, which is a premier wine country club that Bill just dreamt up out of the blue. That's right. He said he was putting together this country club, so to speak, based around wine. They were going to do the crush and the pruning, and they they might even get into beekeeping and just Mm -hmm. something. All the great disciplines that revolve around the Napa Valley. I can smell the grapes fermenting right now. Oh, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. And and Bill just, where we are right now is the home site where Bill lived. And Bill always lived in very modest homes, and he brought up his kids very modestly well, but he started talking to me about this concept. And I'm going, hello, Bill. You know, you're talking to Bruce, you know. <laughs> you're Jamoke down in L.A. That You know, I know red wine from white wine. That's that's where it ends, you know. So he said, no, and this is the way he sold me on He said, Bruce, he said, I'm not calling you because you're such a great wine expert, but wine is more about people getting together, enjoying a good time, being in a nice place, and enjoying friendships. Well, Just like that, these cars. And so that resonated with me, because, I mean, I can do that as well as anybody. You know? <laughs> Better. <laughs> that's right. So that's how I got kind of involved in this thing. And and he started telling me about the activities. And that's when I said, Bill, what about, like, I'm thinking motorcycles and cars. And he said, great idea. You'll be the director of motorsport. There we go. And that's how it started. There we go. <laughs> that's how it all began. And he puts it together every year. He's the one that finds the legends. And he finds a lot of the enthusiasts in the club. We have a lot of members. Wine is really a common thread among all of us if we eat and drink, no matter what our interests are, no matter what our business in life is, no matter what our hobbies are, politics, any of those things. Wine is a common thread. One of the things that was important to us when we were kids and still is, uh, is motorsports. Especially you grew up here in California, That's especially right. in the car capital of the world, 40s and 50s oh, and yeah. 60s, and there's a wonderful place to drive cars, to to get out in the country, etc. Bruce has rounded up a handful of members for us, maybe even more than that. It wasn't the exact reason for it in the beginning, but all of a sudden, people that were into motorsports decided wine isn't so bad. So. You know, it all kind of goes together. Yeah. You, you go out for a great drive, and you come back, and you have a wonderful dinner and wine to make it very, very special. You know, it's funny. I was taking a little hike yesterday around the Meadowwood property. Got a beautiful hiking trail here. And as I was going up on the hill, I realized that you and your friends were all taking off for a day's rally. And I basically just froze and watched a parade of incredible cars leave the property and tried to imagine what each and every one of them was. I know you were uh, taking the lead bill in a beautiful Bentley. 
Yes. Bruce put me in the front because I'm from the area. I probably wouldn't get as lost as fast as okay. everybody else. Okay. <laughs> no, nobody passes Bill. Yeah, there we go. Boy, that's quite a car. I mean, just the quintessential green flying bee, huh? Well, my theory is about cars. If you could get out of your car and walk away without turning around and looking at it, you've got the wrong car. Boy. And so over these years, there was one that was missing, and I talked with Bruce about it here and there. And and we were at an auction about five or six years ago, and one came up, and didn't I couldn't quite get to be willing to pay for it, what they wanted for it. Then I was with Bruce at an auction a few years ago, and another friend of Bruce's, a fellow by the name Bruce Canapa. I'm sitting between those two guys before well, the auction that's a, was that's over. That's a dangerous pair to be sandwiched between <laughs> because they uh, both have about as much experience. And it's like the cartoons where there's a little devil on each shoulder, you know, telling you what to do. You, you captured that, like that perfectly huh? right, yeah. Robert. Yeah. So yeah. I ended up with this car. Fantastic. But now that I have it, I like it even better than I thought I would. And so it was a, a great day yesterday. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. I know you've got an old Bentley, too. A 4.5, is uh, yeah, that right? Yeah, That's yep. a special car. But uh, you were not driving that yesterday. I was driving a little Alpha. It's a neat little car. It's fantastic. Yeah. There's nothing better than the rear end of that Alpha. That yeah. little coated, that the little cam tail. With That's right. Beautiful, beautiful flat black and the tail lights. What a great car! I saw it. I didn't realize well, that's, that was that's your a, car. That is that is a, an enthusiast car, but it's it's really a connoisseur's car because yes, it's it is. it's not high horsepower. It's, nope. it's like thirteen hundred pounds, yep. sixteen hundred cc's. Yep. But they call them baby GTOs, and it's an acquired taste driving it. The visuals, you have to know what you're looking at. Oh, man, I knew what I was looking at. It looked fantastic. And you would understand that, Of course, it's like being inside a coffee can filled with rocks. There's nothing makes more racket because it's really just literally a little body shell on a a frame, and that's about it. Thank you for recognizing it. What a great car. Because I had it up here. I think, well, this would be kind of a cool thing. I don't think anybody here had any clue what that car was. I I did. Yeah, Bill, of course. Bill's a connoisseur, and he likes it machines. I'm convinced that when we're young, when we're in our teens, you imprint early and what you see when you're 12 or 13 years old kind of sticks with you for life. And uh, that's what makes cars such incredible points of reference as we go through life. We look back and we say, man, when I was 15 years old, I was in love and her name was this and the car was named this. And all of those things continue to resonate for decades and decades and decades. And I think we grew up in exactly the right. Oh, mean, man, you guys uh, were, you, you oh were in God. the golden age. We grew up in the 40s, so we had hot rods, yeah. which were just dream machines. Boy, there were a couple I saw yesterday, some 32 Fords that yeah. were just drop-dead yeah. gorgeous. 100%. And so we, so we enjoyed hot rodding. We enjoyed the birth of drag racing, which was last night with the snake. We kind of got into motorcycles when they were safer. That's you know, right, because there weren't as many slower, crazy people on the road. And there weren't so many people texting and driving. That's right. So when you just look at the time that we grew up. And with, place. And place. Uh, that's right. Yeah. We had 12 months. Of beautiful driving Of weather. beautiful driving. That's, that's really a good point, Bill. Yeah. And, of course, they were always expensive, always out of reach a little bit. But the good news is that back in the 60s, kind of in the early 70s, these were just old used cars. And that made it great, too. They weren't these precious, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollar artifacts. You could actually buy a 275 GT Beef and drive it. When we started focusing on exotic sports cars like sure. a Gullwing, a Gullwing was four or $5,000. I know it. I know Today, it. the radio upgrade... Is four or five grand. So, I mean, you know, you could buy a 40 Ford for $50. 
If you had a paper corner, you could afford the kind of stuff that we had. I would say I, between the time I was 16 and the time I was 18, I had five cars that I paid less than $100 for. Isn't that amazing? And then stepped up to 150 bucks for a car. <laughs> but we could work on them. We could custom them. We could do anything we wanted to. We could paint them. We could change the engine. We could do anything. If I had to kind of ask both of you your first real car. What was the first real car you bought? So I bought a Porsche in 1960 from John Von Neumann in Hollywood. Von Neumann, yeah, it was right. a 61 Porsche. I took delivery in May of 61. And that really started me with a Porsche. I've driven Porsches since 1961. Well, that's a, I that's don't think a Bill has ever even had a Porsche. <laughs> but as far as for me, the first car was uh, a 37 Hudson. That was actually a okay. pretty neat car, but it was it was pretty fast, straight six. With yes, uh, it was a uh, I, th I that was an eight cylinder car. Oh, an eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it was a four door, running boards. Uh, it had curtains that came down in the back. It was a, kind of a neat thing. Was, I paid thirty five dollars for that car. I love it. And uh, but then the the next car that was kind of a cool car was a forty one Ford convertible. And that was the $150 car. After the 41 Ford, I got a, a 51 Oldsmobile. And it was a convertible also. You know, as soon as you get your car at that time, you head across the border to Tijuana and get tuck and roll upholstery That's for right, your car. That's right, tuck and roll, yeah. And I had that thing lowered pretty much to the ground. I painted it purple. It was the first car that we you see in those You were days. an early adopter of what became a complete East L.A. phenomenon later Well, yeah, he was in Whittier. You were a tastemaker. Well, I'm not sure it was taste, but we were having some fun. <laughs> did you have the name, like a song title? We, we did have names for our cars. but uh, <laughs> Painted <not>. on <laughs> Dreamboat. Or that car was the Purple Passion, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> you know, this you, is you good. Can't, you can't pay I'll for show it. you ever admit that one. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles, but the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effects, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part and I do mine and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proudsource Water. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Unfortunately, Bruce had to take off shortly after that, but another friend of ours stopped by, Brett Anderson, Director of Culture and Communications. The Napa Valley Reserve is integral to the car collector scene, so I couldn't resist talking to the men behind the property in the vineyard. We poured another glass of wine. It would be an opportunity missed if we didn't talk about the fellow who's responsible for shaping the Napa Valley and its wines and its wine culture. Nobody's done what Bill Harlan has achieved, and I think it's probably an opportune time to reflect on not just the wines that you've created, the Napa Valley Reserve, but the culture that you're responsible for. Bill, there's a lot of history there. Brett, I know you've come up here recently to work with Bill, and you've probably got a lot of stories to tell. Certainly, 
many stories over the years. I've known Bill for quite a while, and a year and a half ago, he convinced me to join his team helping on the communication side of things. But I've always been a great admirer of the wines, and Bill inspired me in that regard. And I'm happy now to have the opportunity to contribute in a very small way to the culture that he's built. But it's interesting, Bill, we're at the Napa Valley Reserve right now. And in many ways, your experience in Napa Valley, I know, began when you were very young and visited here. But this property is part of a larger property that kind of became the beginning of your getting serious about Napa Valley. So I came up here in the late 50s, moved from Southern California to Northern California to go to school. I hadn't been here for about two or three months when I heard there was a place where you could go wine tasting. I came up here to school. This is a fraternity guys all have a pretty good idea of where the end places are, what to, what's going on. And so they said there's a place where you could go wine tasting and they didn't check your ID. And uh, <laughs> uh, the girls like going up there and wine tasting was free and... It's a pretty good program for a college student, so that's when I first came up. And then in 1959, came back and did, in quotes, a documentary on the Napa Valley to get in behind the scenes to see how it worked up here. And at that time, I said, someday if I could ever afford it, I'd like to buy a little piece of land and plant a vineyard, find a wife, raise a family, that kind of thing. That took me another 20 years before I was able to acquire first piece of property, which is pretty much here, Meadowood and this property, Napa Valley Reserve, right next door to each other. We ended up living here, raised our kids here on this property. And then over the years, as we were able to build Meadowood, we entered into this property with an agreement to lease it with the intent to acquire it. And that took 20 years to finally put that together. So here we are now, 40 years later, and Everything's starting to come together. Finally starting to come together. What an incredible story. Well, kind of like your cars. You keep your cars for a long time, and you keep your vision for a long time, too. These are lifetime visions. Yeah, all I need is a few more lifetimes. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, I know you've told me Robert Mondavi was obviously an icon in this business, was part of the inspiration for what you ultimately decided to do. Yes, what happened was I had gone to the opening of the Robert Mondavi Winery in 1966, And I didn't get the nod for the opening night, but I was there the opening week. And it was a huge inspiration. It was the first winery in Napa Valley of any consequence Mm -hmm. after the repeal of Prohibition. Uh, That gave me an even further incentive to try to start my own. And then when I acquired this property here, I got a call from Robert Mondavi. Within, I'd say, 30 to 60 days after we acquired the property, and he invited me to lunch. When you get a call from Robert Mondavi, he invites you to lunch. I mean, obviously you want to show up. (laughs) And he asked me why I bought the property. I told him this romantic idea. And I asked him why he invited me to lunch. And he said, well, this property that you acquired, I think, has way more potential than your romantic idea. And I think that this would be a great place for a common ground. And I asked him, what does he mean by that? And he said that it started out as a little club. There were seven little rooms that they would rent out for people that were visiting the Napa Valley frequently. And he said this would be a great place to continue to do that. And I said, well, how does that make sense? And he says, well, let me give you some perspective. He says, what I want to do is do a wine auction, and I think this would be a great place for it. I would like to send you to Europe. A few weeks in Bordeaux and a week in Burgundy. And at the end of the trip, you'll visit the Hospice de Bonne, which is a wine auction been going on for many, many decades, over a century. 
So I went on that trip and I came back with a whole different perspective. It changed my time perspective from time was uh, really, really important to thinking about time in generations and even into centuries. What did you do when you came back here and what was the decision process that that trip spawned? First of all, I agreed with Robert Mondavi that we would work on creating this place as a common ground. My personal intent along with that, the primary reason I came here was I wanted to grow a vineyard and make wine. What I really wanted to do at that time was create, in quotes, a first growth of California, a wine that someday hopefully could be recognized among the fine wines of the world. So what I had learned on this trip and a little bit of reading and things that I'd done along the way, if you want to produce a wine that's really, really a fine wine, it needs to come from a place. So the most important thing is to find really, really the best land. And so that's the foundation to try to build a wine growing estate and not own the land was not something I was interested in. This first 40 years of the 200 year plan was really about trying to identify and capture some of the very best land in America, which I feel is Napa Valley is. They produce higher quality wine for the longest period of time of red wine, Cabernet based wine than any place in America. And so I wanted to be here and I wanted to try to figure out how to capture this land in a way that we could create something beyond what had done up until now. So that was the dream, a bit presumptuous, but that was the idea. What were your first steps? First step was to start to learn about the wine business when I was looking for land. So we started a winery by buying fruit from different growers to get to understand the land. And over the next five years, did this research, started making wine, learned about the wine business, everything from growing grapes to making wine to understanding how the distribution network works in the wine business. And this winery had turned into a warehouse, so acquired the property, converted it into a winery where we could learn. And so had that property for about 13 years. We grew up from about 450 cases to about 45,000 cases made every mistake known to man, <laughs> but uh, we learned a lot. We bought fruit from over 60 different growers, probably closer to 80 different growers over that period of time. And so we really got to understand the, the lands of the Napa Valley. What about the land in the western hills of Oakville drew you to it? The best wine of the Napa Valley was on the west side of the valley, what they call the bench lands, Oakville, Rutherford a bit. So I wanted to be as close to there, but the most valuable vineyards in the world were always in the hills, especially where they've done the most amount of research over the long longest period of time, well over a thousand years, is in Burgundy. And you'll find the Grand Cru's, the finest vineyards, are on the slopes, not down on the floor of the valley or at the top of the hill, but what I think of as a tenderloin. So that was the kind of land I wanted to own. Land like that would have been on the western hills, but they were all in forests and woodlands. So I was able to acquire a piece of land, the first 40 acres, and from there it began to grow. And at the time that you acquired that land, you had a hunch, but you didn't really know that it was going to be able to produce the kind of wine you wanted. No, we didn't. So tried to hire the people that knew more about these things and certainly more than I did at that time. So we acquired that land, cleared the land, brought in the roads, brought in the infrastructure, planted the vineyards, uh, and began making wine. That was in 1984. So here we are 35 years later or so. Uh, that's Harlan Estate, and we've, we have a good start. Uh, the challenge now is working uh, uh, bringing the next generation along. So we've been working on that now for about 
really 20 years with, with our own family, about 12 years. Certainly the difference between any automotive manufacturer and what you do in your wine businesses, Bill, is that no automotive manufacturer has a 200-year plan. <laughs> and uh, I think your vision is clearly one that's strategic, not just for the near term, but for the long term. But interesting thing, you're a big thinker, you're a long-range thinker, but you're also a detail man. And those are interesting characteristics to share in the same mind. Most people don't have that ability. And I look at, for instance, even the labels of your various wines, the Harlan Estate, Promontory Bond. These are amazing things. You're aesthetically driven on every level. Someone say, well, what is the vision? What is it all about? And what are you trying to do? And so work on giving answers to that, which this idea of creating a first growth has evolved into creating a domain of producing wines at the very highest level from a few different properties. And I would say the things that they have in common more have to do with why. The reason why for us is really to, I think over time we can delight people. If we can, with a little more depth, we can begin to help enrich their lives, maybe indirectly. And if we can do that at a high enough level to inspire them to maybe go beyond. What I think of as elevating the spirit, and we talked about these cars. Aesthetically, if you have a car that's beautiful, it, it makes you feel good, even when you're not in it. And once you're in a car that you've become at one with it, you just feel great there. So both of them are about elevating the spirit. You know, you think about throughout history, what has elevated the spirit more than anything else? And it really gets down to art. And so when you think of these fantastic cars you were talking about with Bruce, and I'm talking about the Peterson Museum, the automobile is going to be recognized as a work of art, these great automobiles. I think someday wine will be recognized in the realm of art. So if we can be working toward producing something at that level that can have that kind of impact on how people cognitively think about things, but also aesthetically, the emotional connection is really about why we're in this business and how those two relate, I feel. Bill and Brett, this was a very rare insight and kind of a special quiet moment to get to really understand the depth behind the wines. Certainly the wines that you produce are remarkable, but I think more remarkable still is the vision behind them and the fact that this vision is certain to endure for not just a century, but centuries and more. Thanks for giving us that insight. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be at the table with you again. <laughs> well, cheers. Thanks to Bill Harlan, Bruce Meyer, and Brett Anderson for joining us on Cars That Matter. And thank you to the Harlan family and the Napa Valley Reserve for hosting us. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Bill Curtis. Recording and mastering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at the Napa Valley Reserve. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guests today were Bill Harlan, Bruce Meyer, and Brett Anderson. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.